welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. The core Tempest partners are working with world-leading capability within the traditional defence supply chain, but now they're also reaching beyond it to find new expertise in sectors that they've never collaborated with before. This transformative approach means that Tempest is capturing some of the best new innovation to emerge from the UK supply chain. Top defence sector companies, specialist SMEs and the nation's brightest academic minds are all working together as part of the team. So what are these projects and why are they breaking into totally new territory for UK industry? Here to answer that question are Dr. Daryl Jayaratnam, Managing Director of DM Analytics, Professor Simon Maskell, Professor of Autonomous Systems in Electrical Engineering and Electronics at Liverpool University, and Craig Turnbull, Director of Electro Impact. So in order to maintain the operational advantage and freedom of action, the UK needs to generate its own intellectual property, and that relies on our innovators. So do you think we have any Elon Musk of the future already? That question for you, Daryl. Well, I think absolutely we do, uh, but it depends a little bit on how you um, define Elon Musk. So Elon Musk was one of the entrepreneurs behind uh, PayPal, and he made an awful lot of money. Uh, But then he decided to take that and uh, invest it in much more innovative um, uh, ventures than many of his contemporaries. When I started uh, my first company, DM Consulting, I worked with a lot of people in the hedge fund industry in this country. And, and I met a lot of people of a very similar sort of level of wealth. But for one reason or another, they preferred to act as investors and put it into uh, much more traditional investments rather than something uh, like uh, Elon Musk's innovations. So I think if we can make it a lot more glamorous and desirable and attractive to act um, as more of an, uh, an entrepreneurial investor in innovation rather than just investing in your traditional stock sales and bonds, then I think absolutely we'll find uh, loads of Elon Musk likes uh, from the UK. Simon, it can be quite difficult to stand out with a very hallmarked identity like Elon Musk. So uh, do you think that part of the education that we have to give up and coming innovators is in how to package themselves? So yeah, so, so uh, University of Liverpool, we're funded to make 60 unicorns, if you will, uh, people who can operate in, in, in a way that we struggle to find at, at the moment. And, and I think part of that is about giving them technical skills and, and teaching them stuff, but part technical stuff. But part of it is about helping them to, to operate in this kind of environment. And, and that's not uh, about just being good at the maths. That's about understanding how to articulate the maths and the advances in ways that people can understand and that people can not just understand what it does, but what it could do and be imaginative. And I think that that facilitating imagination is probably the way, or will play a key role rather, in uh, us having more Elon Musk's uh, in the future. And Craig, he, you know, he, Elon Musk will regularly use his Twitter account and just do witty one-liners that mobilise about 125,000 people in two seconds. So, do you think that that ability to come out with the one-liner, to come out with the bottom line of what you're innovating is important? Yeah, it clearly is to try and inspire people to do things. And, and obviously, we'd all like to know who the next Elon Musk is because they probably want to buy some shares in them. Um, but I think what we need to focus on is, is the environment that he's created to allow that innovation to happen. Um, if we all, you know, we watched the SpaceX videos of the, of the learning to land those Falcon 9 boosters a few years ago, um, you know, nobody laughed at them for crashing a rocket uh, in the middle of the sea. I mean, I, I for one was quite impressed that they even hit the barge. Um, and that that fail fast, fail well kind of mentality has has given people a have a go attitude. And I think that's what we need to do. I think we've become quite afraid of doing this kind of development. And Elon Musk made it look cool again. So we need to we need to harness that, and we need a generation of people who who aren't afraid to try things. I think that's really interesting what you say about creating a new environment because. Nobody, in a sense, wants to be the very first innovator in any given sphere because that involves the heightened risk and they have to absorb all the risk and come up with all the ideas. So also, you've got to be creating a whole new area of fresh intellectual property. So can you describe how in each of your respective organizations you're forging ahead in that way, uh, staying with you, Craig, on that? 
Sure, yeah. And, and our organization, we, we've spent uh, 30 years delivering equipment to the aerospace industry where, where risk is not something we like. You know, we, we like things to be safe. We don't want to travel all the way across the Atlantic Ocean on, on a lot of risk. So it's difficult for us to make that change. Um, but what, what we've tried to do is, is think about how we can generate new intellectual property that works for smaller companies. Um, through the Tempest program, we've, we've delivered a lot of new technology. Everything that we've done has been new. Um, so if you look at some of the publicity that's been around the Factory of the Future system that we've, we've done to support the Tempest program, um, we've delivered a modular reconfigurable floor on which robots can be mounted to. Um, it doesn't sound that complicated, but when you try and wrap that up in the safety element of how you use large industrial robots and keep them safe and allow them to move, it's actually not that easy to do. Um, we, so what is a, if we back up a little bit and what is a reconfigurable core? Because you're dealing with this currency of high tech every single day and yeah. it will be very familiar to you. But what does it, what does that mean? Is OK, so, so typically when you install, install a complicated robotic system, which is what this aircraft is going to require, um, you have to make big foundational setups before you start. Lots of concrete, lots of steel. And once you've done that, it's very difficult to move it. And, and that's kind of a barrier to, to, um, uh, to new, new ideas because what, you have to make these decisions long before you know how they're going to affect the product. So by making an environment where we can move equipment around quickly and we can rapidly reconfigure the factory, we can learn how to make the factory in the first place. Um, we can change things, things that don't quite work. We can move, you know, maybe move a robot to the left or the right. It sounds quite trivial, but actually it's quite complicated to do. Um, and that's sort of true of the, the mobile work we're doing as well. So not only fixed assets, but how we do uh, robotics, automation and cobotics moving around the floor on wheels. Um, you know, it seems, it, again, it seems fairly trivial. But when you start looking at these ideas and think, OK, how is this going to look in the factory of the future? How are we going to keep people safe? How are we going to have people working around the systems? That's where a lot of our innovation is coming from right now. Daryl, there's a lot of buzz around Factory of the Future right now and on co-robotics in particular. Are these areas that you're forging ahead in right now? Uh, in, in some areas, particularly with the uh, co-biotics. So um, I think just one of the things I want to touch on is that it's, it's, been, it's become much easier to look at these uh, novel areas and become involved as an SME. When I started my career 30 years ago, at a government research establishment, there was very much a not invented here sort of attitude and also a, um, well, this is all very risky, so you have to do it as part of a big organization. The acceptance that actually good innovation and the agility that comes with uh, SMEs is much more acceptable to big firms. Uh, and then that allows us to sort of uh, play in this area. Uh, and then an ecostructure has been built around that to sort of build some levels of competition so that when we have a good idea, we can very quickly get feedback on what's actually a good exploitable idea for a big organization and what's just a gimmick. And that then has led us into a sort of a number of areas and almost all the, um, the AI work that we do, um, we, we like to characterize as the other AI, a augmented intelligence, making, making people able to act better, think better, do things better. And so the three areas that, um, uh, we found really works um, or gets a lot of people interested that we work in is firstly developing AI for a sparse data environment. So whereas many uh, people apply it to a big data environment in a lot of areas, not just defense, but in other areas, actually you have sparse data, you have denied data, you've got poor quality data, or the data is qualitative. So developing AI that will allow you to um, make use of small amounts of data or short-term data but really opens up um, a lot of opportunities for dealing with uh, marginalized groups, people who don't uh, naturally get serviced by bigger organizations. So one of the interesting areas we're now taking that is in um, diversity and inclusion work and applying some AI into understanding what the challenge is there. Another area is making AI explainable, but not just explainable to a data scientist, but explainable to anybody, any operator, any layperson. So that then opens up AI again. So there's a particular purpose within things related to Tempest when you're stressed and you need this quickly, but actually it opens up Again, the, the ability to use AI without having to be an expert. And then the final one, which personally I'm most excited about, but might seem a bit more niche, is counter AI AI. So there is an awful lot of concern about the use of AI in, um, in a number of areas that might, might harm. But actually, we've started working with a number of organizations, not just within defense, but others, to actually use AI to counter the use of AI by nefarious organizations. So uh, cyber protection, uh, countering swarming drones and, and other things. So there's lots of really interesting areas, but what really helps is the, the fact that we now have a marketplace for the basic innovative ideas 
which people will pay for and they'll protect and they'll respect and not just the getting it all the way into a piece of equipment. And the bigger firms, um, particularly over the last 10 years, have become very much more open to allowing that to happen and then giving smaller firms that feedback and guidance and support to, uh, to pick a winner rather than just a gimmick. And in that marketplace of ideas, uh, Simon, I'm guessing that the academic environment is every bit as competitive as the the open market because you have to um, prove pretty early on uh, using your data that this is a compelling idea. Yeah, so, so uh, um, yes, it's a simple answer, but I, mean, I think it, 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 that's no, well, perhaps as you highlight, that's no different to operating in a commercial setting. You, you've got to differentiate, differentiate yourself just as a commodity product is of um, no particular, well, you, you can buy and sell commodity products, but it, it's not a great business model, at least uh, for large numbers of organizations. And similarly, commodity research doesn't really get you very far. Um, so, so I mean, I'm I'm trained as an engineer, so I kind of try to see the world as a, a set of problems to solve um, and to anticipate the problems of tomorrow and the solutions that will actually generalize to tomorrow. So, to pick a specific, um, the compute that people are using to apply deep learning, so a particular kind of artificial intelligence, um, is doubling every four months. So. Um, in the timelines of Tempest, that means that uh, it's going to be an awful lot bigger at the end than it was at the start. Um, but uh, there's a real danger that we then um, have algorithms and data science techniques that can't capitalize on that computational resource. So if you imagine you're standing at the train station and the train is leaving at a rate that doubles every four months, you, know, you really want to be on the train. And scientific discovery is the forward driver of innovation. And perhaps one of the reasons that NASA is, has got such a strong place in the public uh, imagination is all of the spillover innovation that emerged from the space program uh, that was reapplied into other sectors. So can you uh, give a snapshot of what some of the exciting spillover innovations are that either exist right now or that you predict will be existing soon? Craig, starting with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, it's still early days for, for the work that we're doing on Tempest, um, and it's, it's difficult for us to get that message out into the world. But certainly some of the stuff we're doing with Cobotics is, is very interesting, uh, and that is going to provide um, a platform for everything else that we're going to do uh, at, at Electro Impact, because being able to make a robot work around a human being is quite difficult. Now, the, the manufacturers, the Kookas of the world have, have made a big step forward in, in supplying these platforms that we can build things on top of, but there's still an element of work in how we get that to you know get the end effector to work how we task it how we program it so that that's that is work that we've done from the tempest which will form a foundation of other work we're going to do and personally i found some of the work we're doing around um agnostic end effectors which i'll, I'll just break the jargon down a little bit for you when you, <laughs> when you see a robot um the, the typical environment is a car assembly line right and it's welding something and the arm reaches in and welds something but how do we that's that's relatively simple compared to what we're doing with Tempest. That's picking up, a, you know, if you're always picking up a welding torch, then then there, there are similarities. But how do we move from that to an agnostic environment where we could pick up any tool, where we could apply an adhesive, where we could drill a hole or cut something? That actually becomes quite difficult. And the, the uh, analogy that we use is if you look at computing and how that's come on a journey since uh, my first computer was a, an Acorn Electron. And if you turn that over, there'd be a whole array of plugs on the back of it, all different shapes and sizes. And then you look at where we are now with a modern laptop and we've got maybe two or three interfaces. We've got USB, HDMI, and then Ethernet, maybe three of them. And that, that needs to now happen in an industrial sense to enable how we're going to do things on Tempest. Because that will, that will create an environment where we can have lots of people working in the same cell, lots of suppliers supplying different pieces of equipment that all plays together. And, and there is a belief that that exists in industry. It does to some extent. There are some standards, like if you look at Ethercat and Brokinet, there are standard ways of communicating with things. But another step needs to be taken. I think that's the thing that really interests us about this job is, is how do we create the USB of robots? Absolutely. And taking that next step, Daryl, what are the kinds of innovations that you think have got enormous potential for the future? Well, as I said, I think the, um, the real potential comes when, when a, a wider range of the population can see the benefit uh, for them. So I, uh, if I may, may, may look far ahead as, um, and pose a vision to you, I see 
uh, the way AI is going and machine learning and many of these uh, techniques to be sort of the parallel to what an education was uh, 200 years ago. Previously, it was only the wealthy who, who could afford to get their kids educated and everyone else just managing the school of life. And then just over 100, 100 or so years ago, uh, a universal education was the means by which we lifted so many people out of poverty, drove so much innovation. And I see um, AI is moving along that path that currently you need to be a big organization to invest a lot and therefore you have to be effectively some kind of wealthy entity to benefit. Over time, as we develop many of these things, so some of the cobotics um, ideas that Craig has mentioned, the idea of augmented intelligence that we use and that lots of other people use as well, that is where the future will be, getting AI to the point where actually you could almost be issued with the AI when you first go to school. It then works, lives with, with, you, uh, with you and makes you the sort of best individual you can be. And then that's constantly upgraded as you go through life. I think that's uh, the ultimate vision. And, and increasing now people are seeing that. It's not that AI is there to replace the human decision maker, that the AI is there to do the bits that actually don't need to be done by the human decision maker and then leaving the human decision maker to deal with the things that actually they must be responsible for and accountable for or that they are best at dealing with. And increasingly now we're seeing that go from niche areas such as defense into other areas uh, such as human development, uh, diversity, uh, dealing with people with special needs. So, so that's where I think it's going. We're moving from a specialist need to almost replace some of the things people are weak at to making people the sort of best version of themselves. Simon, Daryl's just shared a fascinating insight into some of the new areas of application of AI. You specialize in autonomous systems. Are there any other advances you're aware of that could be similarly exciting? So, so kind of build, building what um, uh, Daryl and, and Craig actually were, were touching on. So um, th this idea of modularity um, in theory means that you can combine all the different uh, data that you could gain access to that, that might come from each of many different sources and provide the kind of holistic understanding that, that I think Daryl was kind of uh, moving towards. And in theory, that should just work. And in practice, it really doesn't. Um, and so I think for me, the, the, the interesting technical challenge and something that I'd be really keen uh, to, to pursue over the coming years is, is why not? What, what's the what's actually going on inside the computer that means that it can't just plug these things together? And, and there are there are hints. So so a much more simple version of the problem happens, um, e.g. in the context of Tempest, when you're trying to combine data from different sources and historically, people have found that when you do so, you, you theorize you should get benefits that then don't materialize in practice. Um, and so uh, we've actually taken techniques that we've uh, developed um, in the context of an oil exploration project and been able to uh, say not related to Tempest, I should point out, <laughs> and been able to uh, plug those into data sets reminiscent of those pertinent to Tempest and being able to show that we should get the benefit that people hypothesize should be achievable. But that's by cross-fertilizing ideas. So this kind of modularity means you can plug things in in different places. And then once you can plug it into something that looks like Tempest, you can apply the same idea to something, going again, back to something that Daryl was saying, which is kind of more in the public eye, where you might, for example, uh, look for um, small signals that indicate that there's a, a side effect from a COVID vaccine that has as yet been undetected. And it's exactly the same maths. So the same maths in oil exploration as in COVID vaccine side effect detection as in combining data um, from different sources to Tempest. If we can crack the maths, um, then we can figure out how to open some of these doors. And, and as Daryl and Craig have highlighted, that will op open up other avenues that we just currently probably can't imagine. So, so getting truly to a plug and play rather than a plug shout, wonder what's happening, ring up the call centre, bang it with a hammer, then play. <laughs> and, you know, when you're talking about all of these different experiments and cross-fertilisation of ideas, the common denominator is the human being who is trialling tech and who's 
evaluating technology as well. And, and when human beings are dealing with each other, that involves human relationships inevitably. And at the core of that, I suppose, trust plays a role. Because if you're sharing a breakthrough that could be lucrative, you don't want to miss the opportunity, but you also don't want it to be taken from you either. So how does technology like digitization and new ways of working play a role in protecting your intellectual property, uh, property Daryl? Uh, well, it, it, it is key. It makes it so much easier where you have various digital safeguards to your, to your innovation to be able to, to talk to people. Um, it, it doesn't replace the need for trust. And that is, again, something that has massively changed over the last uh, decade, that there is much more of an acceptance that actually big firms want to work with small firms. It's not that big firms want to poach from small firms or buy over small firms. It, it's good to have lots of small firms uh, in the portfolio. So it's now become much more easy to enter into NDAs, enter into uh, JVs, and even just the basic thing of getting these things signed electronically. It might sound really, uh, really paltry, but just just doing that is a is an advance. And then being able to use various digital uh, techniques to protect your innovation, um, having some kind of modularity, you know, accepting that it's never quite plug and play, but being able to give um, a proof of concept. Um, properly dockerized, protected to a potential partner, even if they haven't uh, paid you for it yet so that they can test it out and try it and know that it's it's not going to be easily copied in a technical sense is vital. But then, as I said, on top of that, you know that they're not even going to try, that they could if they wanted to, because they're much bigger. They could, having got the idea from you, now replicate it. But actually, they bought into the fact that, well, why should we? Simon, do you think that the the kind of process Daryl has described is robust and can protect inventors? Or do you think that there is still a, a certain edginess when they're opening ideas up to the market for the first time? So I think there is some edginess, but I think some of it isn't justified. And I think the um, trust is about listening as much as anything else and also being honest so rather than letting the the marketing kind of uh, get ahead of the reality I think that the digital world forces us to actually be a bit more honest and, and that might be uncomfortable for people that are selling more than they have um, but I think ultimately that selling more than you have is a short-term gain and if we want to win the long-term battle then we have to uh, sell what we actually have not what we'd like to have but but I think also there's a, a there's a kind of corollary I think which is that um, you know I think that the kind of reality that we live in at the moment highlights that sort of back to back teams calls are quite clinical and make it really hard to pick up on the sort of non verbal signs that uh, mm -hmm. actually tell you when you're in a room how somebody feels and um and that's really effect important if you want to have an effective team and effective communication between teams um, and going back to, to something we were talking about earlier i suspect that many more eureka moments happen at the whiteboard next to the coffee machine than on the scheduled zoom <laughs> call and i think there's a real danger that the reality of today forgets that and we starve the eureka moments because we don't have enough physical interaction. So I think the shared physical space shouldn't be sacrificed just because we have the ability to communicate effectively uh, in, a, in a digital world. Craig, if you take yourself back to when you first started out in industry, um, what would you say to your younger self if you could uh, share some of the lessons you've learned hmm. since? Um, what would I say to my former self? Um, again, it, the environment's changed a little bit. This is about this is about innovation. I started work on the A380 um, back in 2004. Um, I worked on the production system there, and again, that's a very risk-averse environment. You know, we, we don't want to make any mistakes on that aircraft. Um, whereas this, we're looking to make mistakes. Um, but th that brings me back to trust and why it was important on Tempest. And what we found through working with Tempest is that we didn't have these big lumbering procurement contracts with threats on every second line. Um, and, and that was quite refreshing, really. That trust did come from meeting people face to face. We were lucky enough to build up a relationship before the pandemic hit. So when you're talking to mm. someone over Zoom that you've already met and you already have a relationship with them, it's, it's a lot easier to continue that relationship. But I, I must admit that we probably did more development in five minutes in the factory a, a few weeks ago than we, we've done in weeks in the past. So, so why, why would trust be important to me? Um, I feel that a good trusting relationship is, is where it's a fertilizer for innovation. 
if you're trusted to do something and not necessarily know the end goal, then that's where the big leaps come forward. And I think sometimes there is, we stand off against each other as organizations with big contracts the size of telephone directories and we're like knights on the opposite side of a battlefield just waiting to pick holes in each other. That doesn't, as, a, as an SME, when you're up against a big company like BA Systems, that, I, I'm going to lose that battle. I know I'm going to lose that battle. And, and an engineer once told me, one of my managers, when I was, I was doing a, a project earlier in my career, that a big procurement contract okay, great, one day you're going to win a lawsuit, but are you actually going to achieve anything? Is the science still getting done? Um, I would argue that it's not. And so what we found you know, through Tempest is that environment's not, not been there. It's been a creative environment. It's been somewhere where a failure is only a failure if we don't learn from it. And, and bringing it back to Elon Musk at the beginning, I, I don't see anything at SpaceX. I don't see it as an environment where people are reprimanded for crashing a rocket. I see it as an environment where they're commended for, okay, guys, you hit the launch pad. Let's see if we can get it to stand up next time. And that, that's so important. That level of trust allows you to fail. So pretty much all of our best innovations have come from a previous failure, either in a competition or in some technology. And then we thought, okay, well, how do we get around this? And it's the, it's the getting around it then potentially, or very often, leads to an innovation and working with big companies who are actually quite accepting of that. Okay, well, that didn't work, but actually we can build on this. Is, a, is a, again, a, a refreshing change because, as Craig said, the procurement environment, the contracting environment is so different. And there might be a lot of SMEs who'd be very pleased to learn that they've got a safer environment than they might suspect. And do you think there's a piece of work that we need to do to explain how SMEs and universities can connect their innovation to wider industry, Simon? So I think, I think there's some things that we don't communicate very well about how we're each measured. So just to pick a really specific thing. Um, so universities in the UK are audited every five years or so, and they are measured in terms of how much the research they do is being used. And that then modulates the amount of funding the university gets. Now, having sat in industry uh, funding academia, nobody told me that. Um, so I assume the only way that the academic, academic would be able to benefit from my industrial self interacting with them was money, <laughs> direct funds. Um, I kind of saw that they were interested in um, uh, writing papers and, and so on. But, but now I sit on, on this side of the fence, I can see that actually just the fact that the uh, academic research leads to things being done differently in itself actually financially benefits uh, the university. And I think once that's made clear, it suddenly dramatically uh, uh, removes the, the, the barrier in, in, in Craig's uh, battlefield with uh, uh, whatever it was, uh, phone book sized uh, contracts, because actually we really don't want the contract at all. We just want a letter telling us that it was useful and then we can bank that elsewhere. Um, and I think that kind of transparency only is only going to happen um, or be, become pertinent if everybody talks and explains what they actually want to achieve rather than everybody making assumptions about what everybody else wants to achieve, which is typically done by assuming that the other person is operating in the same environment as you sit. And, and crucially, I think SMEs, universities and big companies sit in different places. So they have different takes on what's important and what matters. And I think if we can be clear about what those relative priorities are, then we can get win-win-win situations rather than uh, being glad that the book has uh, book of a contract has just doubled in size or some other crazy metric. Craig, how does the clarity uh, that Simon has described offer a real uh, lifeline to SMEs for uh, innovation of the future? Well, well, for innovation for us, I mean, we're, we're still much as we love doing it. We have to pay our staff, and and so there has to be a there has to be a stream of money there to do that. Even if we're trying, even not looking to make money out of something, we just want to do it because it's it's the right thing to do. We've still got to cover our costs. And what's very difficult about the work that we do um, is that we're responsible for some of the, the most amazing equipment in the aerospace industry that's been produced for the last twenty years, but we can't talk about it. Almost always, it's behind closed doors with a big sheet over it with a sign saying, stay out. So, so for an SME, it's actually very difficult to communicate our capability. How do we sell ourselves? You know, how do I go to BAE and say, look, I can do this? And they say, can you show me an example? No, can't show you an example. So, so how do we do that without breaking an NDA? Um, it's quite difficult. And, and when things like Tempest come along with a new media focus where, where our work is being showcased, 
then that that is that is an absolute win-win for an SME because it's a way where that that information that capability is released to the world in a way that's you know we understand there's com- com- commercial restrictions BAE don't want to give away everything and neither do the other Tempest partners. Um, but for us, it's it's absolute goal to have one of our robots on on YouTube and say, look, this is what we can do, and then have the freedom to say, yes, this is what we could do. Think of what we could do for you. Um, so so that's been that's been absolutely brilliant in getting the message out. And the, the visual element that Craig's just described, Daryl, is important because it's a shorthand uh, for people gaining a quick understanding of innovation, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely vital. Um, it, it's one thing to be able to have your 30-second pitch, but very quickly that gets into the specifics of your particular algorithm or application. And so being able to take people around and show them. And, and I was going to say that I don't think it's – I think the, the phraseology that Simon uses, communicating, is a key. It's not so much explaining. We know how to explain it when we get people in front of us and other SMEs or other academics or even big firms. It's easy to explain if we get the opportunity to com- uh, communicate and if we get the opportunity uh, to show people. And you've touched on such an important theme, which is the marketing of your idea. And Elon Musk is a, a real master in that area. And he named his Tesla car after Nikola Tesla. Yet he also said he was a fan of Thomas Edison due to his remarkable ability to sell innovation. So if you're put on the spot, who would you pick as the most inspirational innovator if you had to choose between Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison, starting with you, Daryl? Well, I'd have to say my heart says Nikola Tesla, but my head says Thomas Edison for exactly that reason, that I think there are um, there are far more innovations that have been created than have been successful. And although I hate to say it, uh, because I've worked with lots of marketing people in the past, we've always said, well, our bit is the most important. I've always argued with them. it. It has a ring of truth about it. If you can both invent and sell the idea, uh, and we talk about Thomas Edison, but I think Steve Jobs was an, is another great example um, nothing that Apple made famous did they actually invent. Um, anything that they put an eye in front of, someone else had done it first. But what they did was make this part of your future mobile lifestyle, and they really did that well. And I think having that discipline is, although I hate to say it, um, probably as important, if not more important, than the actual initial invention. Simon, who would you pick? So, so I'm an academic, so I can uh, play the academic freedom card and slightly duck the question. Um, probably I should say uh, Tesla because I'm an academic. But I think that the 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 problem with, with the two people is that they they kind of competed. And so if there had been another pair elsewhere on the planet at the time that was working together, that pair would have beaten both uh, Tesla and, and Edison. And so... I'd like teamwork to be the 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 thing which actually wins. Um, uh, and as an aside, it is a kind of uh, slightly ironic uh, that Elon Musk, you might argue, is that the, the master of marketing uh, as a marketing trick says he advocates the person that isn't the marketeer. Uh, but yeah, I, I think teamwork would be my winner. Craig, uh, who would you choose? Who do you think is truest to the true innovator between these two icons? So, so you have to remember, I'm the the engineer that's that's still in nerd phase. Um, I, I'd have to go with Nikola Tesla. Um, and the, but what reminded me about that particular uh, the teamwork comment was why they fell out in the first place, um, which was about the delivery of AC and DC power. And at, at the time, um, there was a there was a uh, well, it was quite a heated say debate argument that turned into PR stunts trying to prove whether AC or DC would be. The best system, but fundamentally, DC had a had a flaw. Um, it had a critical flaw in that it couldn't be translate transferred over long distances, and, and that's why we have AC power now. And um, in the very early stages of Tempest, we had a very similar conversation about a technology which was viable in its own right, but would not have worked in a robotic environment. And it was due to the process forces that were involved. It was just never going to work. It was it was very clearly seen that it was never going to work. And the engineer at BAE that made the point, uh, he silenced the room completely. Um, and I think that's something that we have to bear in mind when we're researching things. Research for research sake is great, but we need to remember that Tempest is about research and how we exploit technology to build things faster and cheaper and quicker. Uh, and for me, that was Nikola Tesla. He, he, he made that argument early on and could see this is going to work. And this is where we need to put our effort. So um, I'm afraid that's who I'm going to go for on that one with the nerd in me. <laughs> has made that decision. Daryl, Simon and Creek, thank you for your fascinating insights today. No, thank you. It's been really, really enjoyable. Thank Thanks a lot.
Today we're going to take you into the fascinating world of Tempest radar technology, which is so advanced it can process a city's worth of data in a second. We're joined by Alex Robinson, Chief Engineer at Leonardo, and Sam Farrow, Principal Design Engineer at NBDA. Alex and Sam have been collaborating on some of the most cutting-edge radar innovation in the world, and today they're going to break down the technology for us to explain how they're building innovation from the inside out. Every second counts when a pilot is flying through an uncertain environment, so perhaps a good place for us to start would be to find out just how you've managed to squeeze a city's worth of data into a second. Alex, it really is a record-breaking achievement in terms of the sheer volume of data, isn't it? Yeah, I, th I think I think it is, Evie. I think it's I think it is a it is a phenomenal achievement, and it's taken a lot of technology breakthroughs to get to get us here. Um, it's it's probably worth stating why why we want to create so much data and and why why would we would be interested in doing that. Um, so I think I think as you said in, in that intro, um, it's it's an uncertain environment these platforms will find themselves in, and 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 there are lots of clues in that environment in in the information that flies around us at all times. So. Um, in the EM, EM spectrum, there's an awful lot of things that that our current systems would would miss because because they're they're not they're not sampling enough, they're not looking widely enough, and our and our goal on on, on Tempest is really to look as widely as possible, uh, uh, sample as much data as possible, and then of course make sense of it and give it to the pilot in in a way that he can or they can interpret. And that interpretation is key, and it's it's a very much a system within systems as well. So as groundbreaking as the radar is, it really comes alive when you plug it into the wider systems of systems. And Sam, can you help us understand just how the radar links into your technology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in previous generations, Alex and I, or Leonardo and MBDA, you know, we would have lived at opposite ends of the, the targeting and effects delivery chain. You know, platforms and weapons, they were entirely separate programs, entirely separate entities, um, with quite a significant demarcation between the development. You know, Tempest is an unusual program or unprecedented for, for, for a number of reasons, but I think perhaps the most fundamental aspect from my perspective is that it's being examined and developed as a, as a system, not just as a platform. And from an MBDA perspective, that means the delivery of weapon effects is right at the core yeah, and considered from the output. So one of the things that that system focus enables is that consideration of that target and effects delivery chain that I mentioned holistically, you know, involving Leonardo and MBDA and indeed our partners um, within BAE. And it's an area we've been collaborating quite significantly on and across a range of topics. So that's right from the physical level. So how does sensor selection, platform performance, design, uh, how is that influenced by weapons employment and how do we optimise for the maximum um, system level effects? But I think perhaps most interestingly, it's down at that information level. So all that information that Alex talks about um, you know, in this information-rich environment, how can we exploit that? You know, this new generation of collaborative and networked weapons, you know, it's no longer a case of just having track information available to us, for example, you know, the sensor suite on the aircraft and the radar in particular, it'll capture, you know, a range of data about targets, uh, you know, the environment and some of the other sensors about the state of the platform. You know, we're looking to really exploit that to optimise the planning and delivery uh, of effects. And I think finally as well, this, this new generation of sensors, that they, they really support and, and enable consideration of a range of effector types and new capabilities that we've never considered in the air before. So things like the self-protect missiles, for example, that was, was shown at Riyadh a couple of years ago, you know, used to shoot down incoming threats, things like laser-directed direct, energy weapons, you know, other areas where we're collaborating heavily with Leonardo. It's like an evolution of sensing, the likes of which we've never seen before. So can you help us imagine how that works? Can you outline just how your capability will not just sense with the pilot, but think for them as well? Coming to you again, Sam, on that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a huge challenge, really. I mean, we've got a, a, a massive information there uh, captured by the radar and the, and the other sensors in the conveyor system. Um, so it's a huge opportunity, it's, it's a huge bank of data on which we can draw, but turning that into operational advantage without overwhelming the operators, that's a, it's a real engineering challenge. Um, so certainly from an MBDA perspective, within MBDA and again collaborating with, with Leo and BAE, we're developing technology that enables us to take in all the relevant data, you know, a subset of this city's worth of data that Alex described, analyse it, uh, assess its robustness, uh, its utility, use it to generate options, uh, and these could be tactics, um, weapon selections, uh, modes for key subsystems in the weapons, like fuses, seekers, and so on. And then use that to provide options and tactical advice to the to the operators, to the pilots. 
you know, enables them to optimize their delivery um, of the weapon effects. It's all about using that information advantage that has been delivered through the, the, the radar and the sensors, taking a, a great effector and using it in its most efficient and effective way possible, you know, drawing on things like machine learning and advanced processing, a lot of the advancements of the recent years. And, you know, that whole area of AI and machine learning is is something which it, it almost asks of a different set of skills from the person interpreting the data coming in. And Alex, you know, historically, users of radars have needed some help in the interpretation of the data, haven't they? So are you um, looking to a, a whole new realm of data interpretation in terms of what the radar is telling the pilot? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think if we if, if we go back to what we were saying just uh, Sam was saying just before, in in terms of the the system of systems approach, um, that that's not just the, the Tempest platform. The system of systems will be any any allied um, system within within the theatre at the time will be contributing to this overall picture for situational awareness. So behind the scenes, an awful lot is being done to stitch together inputs from it from a number a number of different places in order to form a a consistent and uh, situational awareness picture that the uh, that the pilot can be confident of and um, so in order to do that we, we're going to have to um, make sure that that data is interpreted in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that we've never done it before and will there, going along with that, uh, will there be a new suite of tactics that you would use? Because I'm imagining when you're using um, precision systems of this kind, if it's a planned sortie and a planned event, you'll have everything in place and it will, will run to plan. But what about unplanned situations? How are you both creating an agility, building in an agility? Because with all the precision in the world, you need that responsiveness, don't you, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's the old adage of um, no no plan survives contacts with the enemy, um, but I think you know on, on top of that we've we, we've got the fact that you know things will uh, evolve uh, over life as well. So it's all about building a system which is is able to adapt. It's extensible. It's configurable um, in order to not just accommodate those things that we know will change, but also those things that we we don't know about today, the unknown unknowns, as Rumsfeld would say. And, and out in the field, Alex, to what degree does weather conditions or altitude affect the radar's ability? Are there still some traditional challenges that the radar will face, no matter how advanced it is? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the fundamentals of, of, of radar are, are still the same as they've always ha always have been. What, what is different now is, is as we capture more information and turn that information into, into digits, we have more... Uh, flexibility in in how we process that data because because all that's now happening in software rather than in hardware we're able to adapt the software on the fly and adapt it much quicker um on the ground as well to to, to rise to the challenges as as they as they come to us and i think you've touched on a very interesting point about digitization because in a way you can build it in because one of the benefits of working together from the beginning of the project is that you can be responsive in adapting to the emerging environment as it unfolds. So from both of your point of views, what do you have in the back of your mind about the types of future situations that Tempest might be involved with, uh, starting with you, Sam? Yeah, so I mean, combat air systems today, they're, they're expected to be in, in service for a long time, um, usually beyond what they're originally planned. And during that time, you know, the operational environment can change a lot, and it can change in a number of ways that, that were envisioned at the beginning of the uh, of the project. You know, it can be, you know, the constant development of, uh, of of red tactics. It can be evolution of existing technologies as they, they march on, or it can be complete game changing technologies. Things like you know, hypersonic weapons, um, you know, combat unmanned air vehicles, uh, and so on. There's a number of ways we can't predict everything, but there's a number of ways in which we can build in adaptability there. You know, software-driven capability, as, as Alex mentioned, is a big one. For me, one of the constant things, and this is very much from an MBDA perspective, which runs alongside this, um, and integration into the sensor system and the radar is a key aspect, is that transformation of weapons integration. So you're reducing the cost and time associated with weapons integration, some of which is, is into the mission system, which is where the, the dovetails into Leonardo's activity, um, to enable us to, to rapidly introduce capability, the capability that's needed when it's needed. Um, and, and is there that similar kind of acceleration of innovation in the radar side of things, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really is an accelerator pedal that we're pushing by by increasing the collaborative work, uh, nature of our working, uh, it, by by working directly with MBDA, with, with Rolls-Royce, with uh, Bayer Systems, and also with, with the, the RCO MOD. Um, we're able to share that information and request information uh, far quicker, which means that integration be, should, should and will become much 
much quicker and much easier. And that, that's really that's really a game changer in terms of how quickly we can adapt to future future threats. And of course, an incredibly important customer is the MOD. How are you working with them to understand the future landscapes that they are going to be entering into and, and what they need from uh, your capability? Alex, uh, how are you negotiating that challenge? So at, at the moment, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a big difference to what we've, we've had before in terms of how embedded and how, how much collaboration there is with the MOD. So we, we have an embedded MOD personnel within Tempest and that, and that really helps us because it's not a case of therefore accepting requirements, processing those requirements and, and going back to MOD. We're developing requirements at the same time. Um, we have an intrinsic understanding of, of the problems they, they're looking to solve and they have an intrinsic understanding of the of the challenges that, the, that those those problems create and that allows us to iterate far quicker on, on those kinds of those kinds of challenges um, and I think I think again that's another area of, of, of real transformation that we've seen over the last five ten years in in, in, in um, Tempest. And, and Sam, it's not just the innovation of the the technology it's the innovation of the processes that sit beside behind it isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's the processes and it's and it's the enablers that we have now uh, in, in Tempest. Um, so in previous platform programs, things like synthetic environments and experimentation tools, you know, the, the, the enablers just weren't there. They are now. Um, so we, we, we quite regularly and um, through Tempest rapidly generate models of, of platforms, of, of, of sensors, of effectors, and you get them in the hands of the user within a, within a matter of weeks um, and seeing them operate and being in the room when they're they're using them um, through operator-in-the-loop combat flight simula simulators. It is, it's a complete game changer from an industry perspective. We can quickly uh, ascertain what does good look like, what do they like, what don't they like, what do they wish that some of these capabilities can do. And from that, you can far more iteratively, as Alex says, and far more rapidly nick down on, on what the actual capability need is, um, even if it's very difficult to express that in a traditional requirements fashion. And that is where you're almost touching against the glass ceiling of innovation, because in a sense, you have to help the customer imagine what this highly intuitive technology is going to feel like. And science fiction movies often predict what the user experience will be like. And in those films, technology just seems so effortless. And what can make it look so impressive is that the protagonist uses it so casually. So I'm thinking of films like Iron Man and Tron and Blade Runner and that whole element of the human interface. Um, um, with the machine is at the very core of Tempest innovation as well. So can you describe how you're shaping the technology to fit the pilot senses? And is it your hope that in the future they will use it with a similar sense of ease? Sam, going to you on that. So, so absolutely, yeah, in terms of the, the, the aspiration and the intention that they can use it with a, a similar sense of ease. I think from my perspective, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with, with, with Iron Man. Um, you know, this is an area that we're, we're collaborating um, heavily with, in, with BAE in particular uh, and Leonardo in terms of virtual and augmented reality. And I've really liked the idea in Iron Man that the, the user interface, and particularly that AI Jarvis, you know, once you get rid of all sort of the sci-fi elements, the random waveforms and the data analytics that appear, there's some really, really good principles there. You know, it, it's reactive. You know, in the films, Jarvis constantly monitors the battle space and warns Tony Stark of threats. You know, we would absolutely look through the interface for Tempest to be able to preempt those information needs of the of the operator and feed them the most relevant data at the right time. And it's absolutely key to making sure we can we can um, gain mission success in this information rich environment. You know, it's adaptive. And again, for Tempest, the user interface, it's going to need to be adapted for a number of reasons. Um, you know, whether it's pilot preferences, whether it's different phases of a mission, whether it's new missions, new capabilities, all the way through the life. And that's where things like augmented reality and virtual reality really have benefits over the traditional hardware-based interfaces. And finally, whilst it sounds fluffy, it's helpful. You know, in the film's Jarvis, he recommends courses of actions at key, key points. And again, in Tempest, as we, we touched on earlier, we'd look to provide the operators with clear tactical advice and options, you know, to, to drill down um, through that huge amount of, 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 of information and potential cognitive burden, and therefore maximise, make the right decision in a timely manner and maximise the overall effectiveness. And Alex, I'm imagining it's particularly useful to recommend courses of action when you're dealing with radar, isn't it? Yes, it is. So it, it's again, it's again, it's that, that challenge of interpreting the data for for the pilot in in a useful way. Um, and, and in terms of a, in terms of a science fiction analogy, I, I always think of um, the the one that jumped to my mind was actually Luke Skywalker d diving down into the um, the, the trench um, 
on, on the Death Star and, and, and all of the, the lasers firing, all of all of the um, the information that was flying around Luke Skywalker at that time. And, and he was told to, to trust the Force and shut his eyes. Now, um, I think it's an Arthur C. Clarke quote, which is um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic. So although our pilots won't have the Force, they, they might have... They might have a, um, a sensor system that's giving them situational awareness that allows them to focus on the things that matter at, at that time and make and make timely decisions without all of that clutter um, being being requiring them to act um, at all times. So I think I think that was a, a reasonably interesting way of looking at it. I think you've hit on a really interesting point, Alex, because there is inevitably something quite magical about technology when you're exploring new areas and staying with you. What would be the most ambitious area of technological breakthrough that you'd love to be part of in the future? At the moment, I think um, what I what I see going forward is, is is in terms of that situational awareness picture, and in terms of, of of the thinking that we will do on behalf of the pilot when we move, because we will have so much information and 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 looking at technology trends and and the likes of AI and machine learning, we will get to a point where the information is, is it can be processed and thought through by algorithms we can't even design yet. And, and once we're getting to that point, we'll be able to provide the pilot with um, instinctive information based upon very small changes in the environment around him or, uh, or her. So I think um, I think over the next 20 years, we'll see a real, a real um, transformation in terms of the, the algorithmic development of, of our processing. It's going to become a lot more subtle and a lot more intuitive in a way that we haven't seen before, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, from your point of view, Sam, how do you see that playing out as something you'd love to be involved with in the future in terms of new areas of technological breakthroughs? So perhaps, encouragingly enough, uh, having thought about this, it, it is actually the same as Alex. Um, the That fully integrated um, mission system exploiting AI and machine learning to, to, to uh, recommend tactical decisions which, which a person, a human, may never come up with. Um, it sees things that we don't. It is almost like that magic that you talked about before. And I think if we can get that balancing off the needs of the platform, the sensor suite, the weapons and overall optimization piece, I, th I think that'd be fantastic. That'd be a game changer. Brilliant. Alex and Sam, thank you very much for giving us an insight into some of the exciting innovation you're dealing with right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Join us again for the next episode of Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. Mm -hmm.